Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Maya Salovitz, a reporter and author who focuses on science, public policy, and addiction. Her new book is Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Maya. Thanks so much for having me. A good place to start would be where you start your book with your discovery of harm reduction, a term that you didn't know at the time when you discovered it. Yes, yes. Well, I, it was really not even, um, it was just being developed basically at that time. But what happened was I was injecting drugs and I did not know I was at risk for HIV, even though in New York where I was, all of the um, half of the people who injected drugs were already HIV positive. So I was sitting with a friend of mine or in his apartment because he went out to buy the drugs. And I was sitting with who I, the woman who I later found out was one of his girlfriends. Anyway, I'm there with her. She says, wow, like, you know, if you're going to share needles, you better use uh, bleach because you are at high risk of HIV. And obviously she would have preferred for me either not to share or to have a clean one for every um, injection. But, you know, everything was heavily criminalized and bleach was legal. So she taught me to use bleach and Basically, as a result of that, I um, managed to survive my active addiction and am here to tell about it. And the interesting story of you tracking her down, because it matters that she had been visiting from San Francisco in terms of what she knew about uh, bleach and treat uh, to for harm reduction purposes. Yes. In fact, she worked in part of the consortium that developed the San Francisco bleach campaign, which they did much better at addressing HIV early on among drug users than New York did. And in fact, they actually had a late night TV campaign with its own superhero called Bleach Man, who came to our planet to um, teach people about bleach in order to prevent HIV. Um, and it's like, it's hilarious. The guy looks really funny. He's got like a crooked smile and a jug for a face, a jug of bleach. And uh, he was very beloved in the communities in San Francisco where he would go out and actually demonstrate with a giant fake syringe how to use uh, bleach to clean your needles. And since basically so many people really didn't care if IV drug users lived or died, and many would prefer that we had died. Um, this was this just sort of created a lot of love for this character among the people um, who were injecting out in San Francisco. I have to ask about this because it seems the drug culture in New York was happening at a time when we were aware of the germ theory of disease. And it just seems, why why weren't people already cleaning needles. Like it would just seem like they our natural instinct would just say like this thing that I'm going to stick into my body was in someone else's body. I should probably clean it first. Well, yeah, but water alone doesn't do the trick. Um, and so, um, basically people, um, with addiction, heavily criminalized, um, taught that, you know, any moment the cops could come in and get you, um, this tends to lead to a lot of unsafe practices. And in fact, we were seen as being so incorrigible that even if we were given instructions about using clean needles and ways to get clean needles and bleach itself, that we just wouldn't care and would still share needles because 
somehow we were supposed to be um, very generous with needles when we were in the rest of our lives supposed to be evil, selfish jerks. Well, I think that's a really important point for the, the whole book and something that I've written about too. If we set the scene in the 80s with with people who use drugs, especially people who use IV drugs and the dehumanization of of those users at the time, which it still goes on, but it seems like it was way worse uh, back then. Well, it was it was astonishing to me because basically people would prefer that we died of AIDS in order to teach children not to use drugs. And maybe we took down our lovers and maybe our own babies with us in the process of doing that. They would prefer that to happen than to, quote, send the wrong message um, by saving our lives because they were afraid that if they saved us, young children would suddenly decide that it's a fabulous thing to be an IV drug user. Um, there's no risk to it whatsoever. And it, it looks really great. Like I can see these people on the street and they look fabulous and healthy. And this is what I want to be when I grow up. Um, uh, yeah, like that, but that was the theory. It was basically using people who use drugs as a kind of instrument to send a lesson to children who of course are not looking at people dying of AIDS anyway. Why this different treatment than alcohol? Because that's not the way that we have dealt with culturally alcohol addiction. I mean, we look down on like drunks and whatnot, but it wasn't this like almost punitive, they deserve it. Actually, during Prohibition, the government actually forced manufacturers of industrial alcohol to poison it so that people would die to show that Prohibition was uh, working. Um, so yeah, like we just have this puritanical streak, even when it comes to the substances that we actually consider not even drugs, they're just, you know, alcohol and caffeine and tobacco, which are, you know, we don't talk about them when we talk about drugs. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's like this, this idea that sending a message about the immorality of certain substances should even extend to letting the users die or actually deliberately killing them um, is uh, unfortunately still with us. Now we get to the term harm reduction, which thankfully has become common enough that it's it's well, well known in public policy circles, at least. We, there is sort of a specific birth date of that, but it's also kind of sort of a specific birth country, well, I guess two Netherlands and the UK, but uh, where this kind of radically new way of treating people who use drugs like human beings that we don't want to die kind of came out of Liverpool, especially. Yes. Yes. And um, what was going on there basically was that Edinburgh, which is only about 200 miles away um, in Scotland, had this horrific HIV epidemic among young people in the mid eighties. And they had all of these things going on, like deindustrialization, loss of jobs, um, lots of youth unemployment, lots of despair, and lots of uh, heroin that was coming in from Afghanistan and Iran at the time. So they had lots of injectors. And their first response to this problem was, okay, we're going to cut off the needle supply. We're going to cut off the, you know, we're going to arrest people for drugs as much as possible. And uh, let's get rid of that methadone stuff because um, that only encourages people to use more. And so this created the perfect storm of having more active drug users with fewer clean needles in a time when HIV was introduced into the population. And so 50% of the people there were infected before they even knew that they had a problem. 
And Liverpool had basically the same socioeconomic and drug um, access situation going on, but they didn't have HIV yet. So they were like, we don't want this happening here. Uh, we have a chance to prevent this. They knew that in the Netherlands, a drug user named uh, Nico Adrians had created a needle exchange, which gave clean needles and people returned their used ones. And that this had been effective there. So they wanted to bring that over and, and copy and replicate that. And they also, um, because the UK never outlawed the medical use of uh, even heroin itself or morphine or other opioids and cocaine to treat addiction, we outlawed this in around 1919, but they didn't, they had something known as the British system. And so they um, were able to prescribe these things when people were very high risk, um, when AIDS became a threat there. And so they expanded methadone prescribing, they expanded prescribing of these other drugs, and they basically made it a lot easier for people to get help, even if they had no intention of stopping the drugs. Because the goal here is reduce the harm associated with AIDS, which at the time was a deadly disease and still is without treatment. Um, so People were just, you know, horrified. Also, it's communicable, unlike IV drug use. It seems, though, that this, I mean, does harm reduction work at cross purposes with drug criminalization, though? That if the goal is to, we don't want people using drugs, um, it's an illegal activity, we've declared it illegal, that basically making that illegal activity easier or less deadly, you know, it'd be like we, we manufacturing drugs is illegal. Um, and but if we came along and said, okay, we know you're manufacturing drugs, and say cooking meth is dangerous, so we're also going to give you the resources to protect yourself against explosions if you are cooking meth. That those seem like those might be at cross purposes. So does harm reduction, I guess, require giving up some sense of like how criminalized the thing should be? Well, yeah, I mean, the whole point of criminalization is to stigmatize the behavior so people don't do it. The problem with using that as a way to treat addiction is that addiction is defined as compulsive behavior that occurs despite negative consequences. So negative consequences aren't actually deterring it. In fact, you make somebody hate themselves and stigmatize them and isolate them. They're going to be more likely to use and more likely to use in destructive ways. So harm reduction kind of blows up all that. And it says, wait a minute, what are we doing here, guys? Isn't the thing we want for most people to stay alive and be as healthy as possible. And so shouldn't our focus be on stopping harm and we shouldn't really care about stopping highs? And that is why it became incredibly threatening to prohibition um, because it does send the wrong message. And to me, it sends the right message, which is that even if you use drugs that we as a society don't like, you have the right to live. And the idea that like we will, quotes, enable people to have alcohol and tobacco, which are as deadly um, in the cases of severe addiction, um, that will allow you guys to have a safe supply or safer, or, well, tobacco is a complicated question, but let's say alcohol for now, we let you have a safer supply, um, but the other ones of you need to die to serve as an example to kids that these other drugs. And so what this brings up very quickly is that our drug laws, our drug laws are irrational, that they are not made on the basis of, okay, this wise committee sat down and they said, 
okay, alcohol is much safer than marijuana, therefore it should be legal and marijuana should be illegal because you couldn't scientifically do that even in the 1900s. So um, what our drug policy is a result of is a series of racist panics and anti-immigrant panics. So it just, until you understand all of these pieces of it, the fact that these laws are not actually health laws, that they are moral panic laws, the fact that what they do really well is enforce racism and classism, but don't do anything about stopping people from either becoming addicted or, um, you know, recover. They don't drive people into recovery either. It's interesting because talking about the the nature of addiction is on one level, as you defined it, like it's compulsive use despite negative consequences. But we also have to have this pair. We have to have an understanding of what the behavior of a person who is addicted is like. And of course, your previous book on broken brain gets into that where on one level, you could say addiction is always a choice. Or if you're chemically dependent and compulsively using something, you could always stop using it. If someone said, I will, I will, kill your family if you use heroin one more day or so. And so if even, even though the consequences are really high, you can stop using it. Or you could go to the other side and say that addicts are completely compulsive and will not stop under any circumstances. And it seems that our understanding of what addiction is, is very important in terms of how we deal with public policy and whether or not we think they will even people who compulsively use drugs will stop under any circumstance whatsoever. And in the eighties, they described them as, as essentially animals who wouldn't stop under any circumstances. And then sometimes we go back to the other side and say, it's always a choice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, the truth is clearly in the middle. People with addiction don't generally shoot up in courtrooms, for example. Um, you know, um, they generally try to avoid police. Um, so they generally try to wait to use till they're in a circumstance in which they can actually appreciate the use if possible. Um, so yeah, there's certainly some choice involved, but what I argue is that it's a learning disorder and you have basically learned to love the wrong thing. And when the systems in your brain involved in love, which are the same systems that are basically Darwinian to keep you surviving and reproducing, those are strong motivational systems. And when they go in the wrong direction, they're going to set your priorities in ways that are really extreme. So yeah, so if if you do tell somebody who's addicted, you can't have any more heroin or I'm going to kill your family, probably at that moment, they will not do any heroin and they will completely comply. Um, but the question is what happens later? Um, and it is really, um, the thing that we tend not to understand about addiction is that it's not this like fun, pleasure seeking, happy go lucky thing. It's really about the person has found that the drugs do something that they can't do without it. So for example, for me, like I'm quite socially awkward and I found that uh, being involved with drugs gave me something that people were interested in hearing me talk about and felt made me feel more socially connected and, and all that good stuff. So um, if you just take away the drugs, I'm still going to be not in a healthy state until I get the coping skills that I need to be able to manage either without those drugs, either without certain drugs um, and get the legally sanctioned ones that are okay for me to have for my depression and my compulsivity. 
how does harm reduction fit into that model then? Because if you could, so you've got this need and it could be met in a number of ways. And right now it's being met or addressed in this unhealthy way um, or this personally destructive way. Um, and then we we make that way less destructive or easier than it might otherwise have been under the current regime that would seem to make it give you fewer incentives to look for solutions in other places well see this is what this is where people get things really wrong you'd imagine that if you enable somebody by giving them free heroin and free health care and lots of social support um, that they would just stay on that forever and, you know, never stabilize their lives or do anything else to like, you know, cause they've got what they need. It's all there. Now they're all good. They don't have to spend their life chasing it. But that is the issue because once you take away the cops and robbers and the like 80% of your day spent like getting the money or doing the thing that you need to do to get the money. And then the rest of it spent like actually trying to obtain the drugs. When you take that all away, there's a whole lot of space in people's lives. And that space is where change can happen. The other thing that people don't get about harm reduction is when you treat somebody kindly and respectfully, they tend to want to treat themselves better. And treating yourself better generally does not involve shooting massive amounts of drugs. Uh, so what happens is exactly the opposite of what you would predict by the enabling and tough love theory. There is actually no data that supports the idea that um, if you give people the drugs they want, they will just, uh, you know, um, never get better. What happens is people kind of get better when they get better. Um, and the, you know, harm reduction has a saying, like, meet people where they are, but don't leave them there. And so the idea is like, you know, right now, you may not be ready to give up injecting, but you'll probably be happy to use a clean needle. And okay, now that you're using a clean needle, you see that you've made a positive health change for yourself. You know, maybe you can inject a little bit less, or maybe um, you want to switch to smoking instead, or maybe you just want to um, try abstinence. Maybe you want to be on methadone. Like, it just gives people space to actually make change. Because we think that like, if we just push people into a corner and coerce the heck out of them, that that will force them to change. And that might work if people weren't actually addicted. But when you're actually addicted, the drug serves the most important purpose in your life. It is the thing that gives you emotional comfort. It is like your lover. Um, and you know, when you look at, when you look at the way people behave when they're in, you know, illicit affairs, it's quite similar to the way they behave when they are, uh, you know, addicted to drugs. So they'll lie about the affair, but they're not going to suddenly start lying about everything else unless they've always been that way previously. So it's really, um, we just need to get out of the mindset that punishment is what's going to fix this. It's also interesting that when you, understand if you can make because in your story all the many of the stories you tell in your book this was usually a grassroots effort with people who had been users or currently were users who understood where other users were coming from not from public health officials necessarily although sometimes they got on board and in some of the characters in your book you know you can be a compulsive user for 30 years in a stable way 
as long if you get your 9 a.m. injection and your 9 p.m. legal injection, and then you kind of make drugs boring in some weird way, in a good way. It's like you're not going out for the adventure because I've read that for for compulsive users during you know prohibition, you know when you're you're trying to alleviate anxiety. And you're, you know, you're looking for supply. And so like you wait three hours longer and four hours. So you finally hook something up and then it feels just even better to finally get over that, that it actually helps make the compulsive use even stronger because it's irregular. Whereas if it's regular, it could be kind of boring. Yeah. Right. And that's like, that's the thing that people don't understand about uh, opioids and maintenance in particular. And it's an important point because um, basically if you take the same dose of methadone or heroin or buprenorphine or Oxycontin at the same time every day, you will end up having a complete tolerance to the intoxicating effects of the drug. So in other words, you won't be impaired. You can drive, you can do all of these other things. Um, So, but people think like, they, they're like, you know, reference point is alcohol. And like, yeah, I can maintain somebody on alcohol and they'll be less impaired than they would be if they were taking it irregularly in varying doses, but they'll still be impaired. But this is not the case with opioids. And this is why you can have somebody who's on heroin for 40 years and you can't tell them from anybody else. It seems then that we have this problem of effectively cultural pictures of addicts. Because, and I wonder how much this is driven by the lack of legality, that with alcohol, we know we know what an alcoholic looks like. And the person who just is constantly drunk and violent and, you know, like non-functioning alcoholic. But we also know about all sorts of other people who use alcohol because it's not illegal and people use it openly, publicly, regularly, and have a glass or two of wine each night and are fine. And, you know, like we we know what alcohol use looks like across that spectrum. But the illegality of the illegal drugs means that basically we're only aware of the people who are at the extreme of just dysfunctionality from it. Uh, the functional ones are hiding it. Yes, exactly. And so like what you have is this paradox where um, people, you know, when you when you look at harm reduction, like you see a lot of people shooting up and you see like, you know, this craziness and people are handing out needles and they're like, they don't look so good and all of this. And you think, oh, God, this is terrible. This doesn't work. And then you go to like a abstinence treatment center and everybody's like happy and they look good and they're healthy. Yeah, because those other people dropped out and they're not in services anymore. Um, so the same thing with criminalization, the people that are functional and doing well under a criminal system are going to be hiding themselves. And the people who can't hide themselves are the ones you're going to see. And criminalization will sort of recapitulate and reinforce the negative stereotypes we have about, say, people with addiction being criminals in general, because the prices are so high that it's very hard to support your habit without being a criminal under criminalization. And so then, yeah, so then, of course, you see all all these people must be criminals um, in a way that you wouldn't see if you simply had, um, you know, a safe supply, basically. It's one of my favorite things about your book is is it's all the stories, but the people who who got out there and started treating people who use drugs compulsively like human beings, and 
it made their day. I mean, John Parker was my favorite uh, story in the, in the story of the passing out of, of needles. Uh, could you, you were there for that event, at least for the, the civil disobedience one, but also just the way he did it for, for years and years and years and how much that was appreciated by people who use drugs. Well, yeah. And I mean, all of the early needle exchangers um, had that experience because the people, you know, this is like the height of the drug war and drugs are bad and drug users are evil and, you know, we should let them all die. And AIDS is out there and crack is out there and everybody's, you know, just focusing on these people are the enemy. And then somebody comes up to you like John Parker and says, hey, I'm going to give you a clean needle. I don't want anything from you. If you have a dirty one, that's great. I'll, I'll take that back, but you don't have to do that. Um, all I want is for you to protect yourself from HIV and here's some condoms. So, um, that just blew people's minds because they knew he was doing something illegal. He was risking his freedom to help people that everybody else wanted to just step on and avoid. So that was just so powerful. And you could just see it, um, when you went out with him to the places where he did his work and, and with, you know, the other um, needle exchangers like the ACT UP folks or the people out in San Francisco or where, you know, wherever it happened, this thing happens because it's criminalized in most places. And so you would just see um, people just responding because like when somebody tells you that they care about you and they don't demand anything from you, that's kind of like unconditional love in a way. And that's very rare. Like, especially if you're like a person who's unhoused, you end up being, you know, everybody's crossing the street to avoid you. You smell, you know, if you go anywhere, first they want you to say a prayer or they want you to do this or you, they want you to commit to abstinence. They, you know, they want something from you. They want you to change if you are going to, um, you know, get anything or, you know, be of any value to them. And in this, that's not the case. It's just like, hey, AIDS is out there. We don't want you to get it. Clean needles are actually more fun to use because they're not dull by repeated use. Um, so you have no incentive not to use them. Um, so why, you know, um, and we're like, we are risking our own freedom to try to help you. And yeah, it's just like, it is very powerful. And it's kind of funny because making it legal in that sense makes it slightly less powerful, but it's still better for it to be legal. What was the public health officials response like to these ad hoc community needle exchanges? Well, it's interesting. It, it sort of varied regionally, but public health people tended to get it. The people who didn't get it were people in addiction treatment. And they were like Phoenix House and a lot of the abstinence treatment places were just hugely opposed to needle exchange. And it was just like, I just found this horrifying because why would you ever want to go to a treatment center that's basically like, oh, you should die if you don't get help? Like, and also that at the same time acknowledges that 90% of the people are going to relapse um, and that like there isn't enough treatment for everybody. So, but let's just not let them have the clean needles because the message, the message. Um, yeah, no, it was just gross. But like the public health people, you know, they had done like, you know, um, sexually transmitted diseases and they were sort of, it, it tends to be a sort of more radical kind of, there's, there's a lot of people in public health who are like kind of activists, um, more so than I've seen in like traditional rehabs. Um, and so they were definitely much more open to it. The problem was the politicians. There is an interesting character who shows up in your book, uh, 
Anthony Fauci, uh, not to <laughs> who's uh, you know let's say been in the news to say the least recently, but he th- he didn't get it at one point because of his concept of of what an addicted person is. Well, yeah, no, and and he kind of indirectly inspired ACT UP's needle exchange because um, Richard Elovich went to hear him speak. And at that point, Richard was involved in um, the treatment and data committee, which was like um, doing all this great work around the science and getting better you know, medications and developing drugs and all of this. Um, and so he wasn't, you know, he was kind of put off a little bit by needle exchange because he thought like, oh, I don't know if I can deal with, he's a recovering person. He's like, I don't know if I can deal with, you know, triggers and seeing needles and all that. And I don't want to relapse and all of this. But Fauci basically said to him, Ah, we can't do anything for those drug users. They're a non-compliant population. You know, we won't let them in our clinical trials. And that made Richard furious. And so he, um, he just, uh, he went back to ACT UP and he had been sort of thinking about, um, you know, whether or not they should get involved with doing illegal needle exchange because the mayor in New York had shut down the pilot study that he'd allowed um, so anyway, so Fauci pissing him off was a big spur for Richard Elovich to do the activism that he did. And he ended up becoming one of the needle eight, the people who got arrested along with John Parker to, um, try to challenge the laws that made, uh, that criminalizes syringe possession in, in, uh, in New York. Do 12 step programs work? I think they work for some people. Um, and I think that what we need to do is recognize that for every medical condition, there are cases where sort of faith healing kind of things work. And especially if you are talking about a condition like addiction, where what you really need to recover is a sense of meaning and purpose and hope. And for some people, 12 steps certainly provide that. Um, the problem is that you shouldn't put it into a medical addiction treatment system. So right now, you know, something 70, 80% of our treatment system is focused on teaching people the 12 steps, teaching people that the only way to recover is, you know, going to meetings and being totally abstinent from all substances other than caffeine, sugar, and uh, cigarettes. Um, so it's... <sighs> This is the thing. It never should have been part of professional treatment Um, because, for example, if I go to treatment for depression, I don't get told I have to, like, get on my knees and take a moral inventory and make amends to the people I've harmed. Um, If somebody told me that when I was in depression treatment, I would think that I was seeing a quack Um, and I would think that um, they're blaming me for having depression. But when it comes to addiction, this suddenly is the default mainstream treatment. And so while I think all human beings could benefit from moral inventory and making amends to people they've harmed and all that good um, sort of spiritual work that you can do, if you single out people with addiction to be the only people in medicine and psychology that get a moralizing treatment, how is that not stigmatizing them? How is that not saying addiction is not a disease? Even though people in 12-step insist over and over that they believe addiction is a disease, but they also believe it's a disease that has the only moral treatment in medicine. 
So in order to get rid of this controversy and yet let people benefit from the fact that as mutual aid, as help in the community, it's free, it's available 24-7 in most places, um, and it provides social support, which is essential for many for most people's recovery. So it's like this, this thing where I end up seeing, being seen as either way too 12 step or way too anti 12 step. But what I'm trying to do is like say in the community, 12 steps can be a wonderful source of social support. And for that reason, treatment providers should say, look, if you're going to recover, it's really important to have some social connections and support. That might just be your family. That might be a 12-step group. That might be your exercise group. That might be your church. That might be your temple or mosque or whatever. Um, but you generally are going to need something that makes you feel connected and makes you feel like you have a purpose. Employment, also helpful. <laughs> but um, basically, that is essential to recovery. People need to be able to find pleasure, meaning, and purpose in something other than drugs and and relief. So um, for some people, the 12 steps can do that. Um, for other people, they can be really harmful because when you look at the chapters, for example, on taking moral inventory, one of the things you're supposed to do is look at your own part in the harm that happened. And so if you're the survivor of child sexual abuse, you did not have a part in causing that. You should never be told to think that you might have. Like, but that is kind of implicit in some of the literature there. And people have made it explicit in some of these abusive treatment centers where it's like, oh, you seduced that adult. Um, and that is one of the most damaging things you can tell to somebody who survived sexual abuse. So, um, you really need to be careful with 12 steps also with um, people who have historically been um, oppressed, women, people of color, um, telling them that they're powerless and that the only thing they can change is themselves. Um, uh, no, no. You can change a lot of other things. And seeing yourself as powerless is not a good political stance. It seems it. It seems like in, in some contexts, I've known some people who are addicted and recovered, and and it's obviously one of the you know most important points you made is it. One thing is not for everyone. Uh, it's, it's a different thing. Obviously, some people can use twelve steps, but I had I had friends who were very much into the disease model, and it made them think. It made them not take some amount of ownership aside from adverse childhood experiences or something like this, some amount of ownership of the choices they made that led them to being a compulsive user. And it was, it was helpful for them to actually say, to actually reconceptualize it as not exactly like depression because you can become depressed through, you know, just because your brain changes, but you do have to start using substances at some point to become compulsively a compulsive user of those substances. And so, not taking ownership of your of your trauma. I mean, that happened to you, but taking ownership of the decisions you made that led you to compulsive use. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I just don't think of that as being really important. Um, 
I feel like, um, you know, you make a lot of choices that get you depressed too. For example, you decide to stay inside instead of seeing people because you're scared of seeing people. And then you get into this whole avoidance cycle. There's all kinds of choices you make in all kinds of things. Um, I think it's a kind of red herring. Let's not worry about that. Let's look at what we can do now to get better. Um, and regardless of its depression or, or, you know, addiction. What role do the courts play in addiction treatment? Because it seems like a lot of this is you go in front of a judge and they tell you to go to this program. Right. And I think that is just ridiculous. Um, I think that if you've committed a crime, like a real crime, like, say, hurting somebody else or, you know, um, like, you know, grand larceny or burglary or whatever, um, and the driving force behind that crime is your addiction, um, it is perfectly reasonable for a judge to say, okay, um, we are not going to let you be free until you get that addiction taken care of. Um, the thing that then becomes a problem with things like drug courts is they mandate specific treatments. And that causes a real problem. For one, they tend to mandate abstinence treatments that do not cut the risk of dying from opioids. So, you know, methadone and buprenorphine, if you stay on them, they cut the death risk by 50% or more. And then they're mandating people into treatment that doesn't cut the death rate at all. So that's, that's deeply problematic. Also, when you mandate people into treatment, you become the client of the treatment provider, not the patient. In other words, you are now giving these treatment providers all of these free customers and they don't have to serve them. They have to serve you. And that just makes for incentivizing punitive and harsh care because there's no reason to improve the quality when all your customers are coming to you. Like it's it's kind of like um, Alan Marlett once said to me, you know, like imagine yourself like a car maker and you're making lousy cars. What you should do is make better cars, not get the government to mandate that they have to that you have to buy these cars. But that's what we're doing with addiction treatment through the criminal justice system. And so we're propping up a harmful and often abusive system that is expensive and really doesn't work for a lot of people. Now, in the pandemic year, when we got the numbers in early August, we found out that 93,000 people died of drug overdoses in 2020, which was a 29% increase over the previous year, which I think is the largest, largest percentage increase since we've been measuring this. Um, you, know, you have a couple chapters on this being – this should be seen, in my opinion, as the the – biggest harm that we should be trying to reduce. I mean, it's, it's sort of akin to the AIDS epidemic where this is death. This, you know, this people lose jobs when they become users of drugs and a lot of bad things can happen to them, but, but dying is, is, should be at the top of the list. So what's, what is going on there? Well, part of the problem is that we just looked at this graph that showed, oh, look, prescribing's going up and um, overdose is going up in sync with that. So if we cut prescribing, that will solve the problem. In fact, so we've cut prescribing by like 60% since 2011. During that period, overdose death rate doubled. So obviously this was not a very effective solution. Why didn't this work? Because if you cut off somebody's supply of drugs, you are not treating either their pain or their addiction or both of them if they happen to have both. And so what we did was we drove people from a safer medical supply to an extremely unsafe street supply and just assumed, oh, we cut them off. That solves the problem. 
I don't understand the thinking there. It's like, you know, when you had a pill mill, you had a list of every single patient because in order to get a prescription, you need ID. Um, they could have immediately offered them access to methadone and buprenorphine or to pain, other kinds of pain care if they had pain. Um, but we didn't do any of that. We just threw them out. We detected them and threw them out. Thousands and thousands of people. And now what's happening with chronic pain is that um, research is coming out showing exactly what the pain patients have been saying, which is that cutting off opioids is often disabling and often leads people to either suicide or overdose. So just cutting off the medical supply, if, you're, if you've been on opioids for either pain or addiction or both for several years, now if somebody just cuts you off um, or tapers you down involuntarily, you have, I think it's twice the risk of dying of overdose and four times the risk of dying of suicide. So yay, very, very effective policy. No, our policy has done more harm than Purdue Pharma. But that focus and a lot of the focus we've had in the conversation today has been on the impact of these policies, good or bad, on existing users, how to get them help, how to prevent death or suicide for them, and so on. But it seems not controversial to say that cutting off supply might limit the number of new users in the future. Like, it- Well, except for the fact that people who are going to be, who have high risk for addiction actually seek drugs. Like you're, you kind of assume passive exposure by just saying, well, if we just like get rid of the dental opioids, then like, you know, these kids will not do drugs. These kids are, who end up being addicted to opioids are already using cocaine or methamphetamine, um, heavy drinking, um, you know, lots of marijuana, um, uh, lots of different, maybe some, you know, they are, most of the people who became addicted to opioids during this crisis did not get the opioids from a doctor, even though they were medical opioids. They got them from 80%, got from friends, family, random medicine cabinets, um, drug dealers. So yes, if you cut that medical supply, those people will not have access to it, but you're still not cutting the fentanyl supply. And so those people are going to, those kids who are just experimenting are actually going to be starting with something more dangerous. Now, I think that there is absolute value to reducing overly large prescriptions for new patients. And if the person actually needs a large prescription, there's a lot you can do by um, having like lock boxes and other ways of managing the supply so that the kids don't get into it. That is a much more effective and humane and compassionate way of dealing with the problem of leftover medical opioids, which by the way, I should stress, if these drugs are addicting everybody, why are there so many leftovers all over the place? Yeah, I try to make that point all the time. Uh, it was back, you know, I would say 2008 when you got 200 opiate pills because you got your wisdom teeth out and then you just kept them there for the rest of the time. And then your kids went into the medical cabinet and took a hundred of them and sold them on the street. That's, that is the diversion that led to the, the quote unquote opiate crisis. It wasn't getting people hooked. And I love your point to, and to steal from your previous book, you know, this idea that Drugs are not the primary cause of drug addiction, the drug itself. Otherwise, we wouldn't even give heroin in hospitals, which they do all over Europe. Right? They would, they do it all the time as just a pain relief, just like we do Dilaudid here. Um, so what, what can we do? It seems like we're back in a weird, a drug scare of a different sort. So we still have these prescribing limits. We still have these 
pain patients who are pain refugees. And we're still afraid of drug use in a really interesting and dangerous way. So what can, what can we do going forward to try and get back out? It's, it's like we keep going back down these different troughs and we're back down a different one where we have more overdose deaths than ever before. We're prescribing fewer opiates. So people are in pain and people are dying. So we just did the worst of both. So, so what can we do better? Well, first of all, I think we need to change the law so that it is legal for doctors to treat addiction with opioids or stimulants. Uh, right now, under a series of Supreme Court decisions in the Controlled Substances Act, basically, if a doctor is prescribing to someone with addiction for their comfort, um, that is not a legitimate medical purpose and they can be arrested. And there's no, the definition of addiction, according to like the um, DEA and all these old laws, is that you're physically dependent. So this means cocaine is not addictive and all pain patients who are taking opioids long-term and all people who are successfully using methadone and buprenorphine and have got their lives back and are functional and all of that, all of those people are still actively addicted and are just as much trouble as somebody shooting heroin on the street, which is a ridiculous thing. You should not see addiction that way. Um, so we need to change the law such that um, maintenance prescribing is allowed. And what this would do is allow doctors to treat patients without having to cut them off if they suddenly decide they're addicted. Because that's what's killing people now. Just like cutting people off, like saying, oh, look, we found a report on you. You know, you're getting from different doctors. We're just going to cut you off. Okay, so now that person goes to the street. That is not a success. Um, if we want to actually have seen opioid prescribing, we need to train people better and we need to have people recognize what the actual risks are um, and to take precautions with the high risk patients, which isn't what was done in the past. Like you shouldn't just give people 90 Oxycontins because they have the wits and tooth out. It's ridiculous. But that doesn't mean when you have open heart surgery, you should get three codeine. Uh, we just swing from one extreme to another and it's not helpful. We need to recognize this is a complex problem and that if you don't make people with addiction into the mortal enemy of doctors, because if you're accidentally su supplying them, you can accidentally be a criminal, um, then we should... Um, you know, this this is not a sustainable way of dealing with this problem. If, if doctors don't have to be policemen around addiction, um, they, you know, and you can still get rid of bad doctors this way. It's not like you can't say, oh, look, this guy is like giving out 100 Oxycontin to everybody who walks in the door. Okay, if he's doing that, um, take away his license. Like, it's not that complicated in terms of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and he's not going to be any harm to anybody without his pen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.